Welcome back, everyone, to this month's research briefs. Today, we are going to talk to one of engineering education's social scientists slash sociologists. As such, she is in the minority as she's not an engineer in the engineering education space and thus provides a different perspective to our field. So today we bring to you um, a scholar that I've gotten to know through some of the work I've done as an external evaluator, Dr. Liz, Liz, Liz Litzler. Liz is the director of the University of Washington Center for Evaluation and Research for STEM Equity, also referred to as CIRCE. Liz also holds an affiliate faculty appointment with the University of Washington's Department of Sociology. If you know her personally, you know she is also a modern quilter in her free time, and you can check her out on Instagram at at E Litzler, L-I-T-Z-L-E-R. Jeremy. Cool. Yeah. So thanks again, Liz. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about how you situate yourself in the field of engineering education and give us a little bit of an overview of your path to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I feel like I've been in this world for a while, but I'm not like a card carrying member, if you will. So, um, so I really started working in engineering education back in 2003 when I was a graduate student and I was working basically at the same center where I am now, but, um, doing a research project that was funded through the Sloan Foundation studying climate for undergraduate students. Um, and I've continued that work uh, on climate, you know, over the many years. But um, as Monique said, I'm a sociologist, uh, but my dissertation was focused on gender segregation and undergraduate engineering majors. So like my work is very, has, is and has been very specific to sort of STEM education or engineering education. Um, and so, as I mentioned, I've been at the center where I am currently the director for a long time, 20 years now. Um, and our center focuses on really providing high quality program evaluation and also social science research uh, that's all meant to improve STEM equity. So, um, and then I've, people, other folks may know me through work that I've done with WePan. Um, I've been a board member of WePan in the past. Um, I worked with Jeremy on the Commission on Diversity, Equity, Inclusion of ASEE, and I'm part of multiple ASEE divisions, and I'm kind of a regular at Connect the Connected Conference, so people who go to that can usually find me there as well. So that's sort of where I am. Yeah, fantastic. Um, what do you think is your greatest impact? thus far, either as a researcher or educator, just a member of the engineering ed com community. And, and I would, I'm not one to give out cards, but definitely a card carrying member of this field. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is a really hard question. I mean, how do you, mm -hmm. what do you want your impact to be versus what your impact actually is? And I don't know, you know, my, when I think about this, I think about maybe both what it has been and what I want it to be. And mm -hmm. I guess the maybe two ways I think about this is that one of these is that I'm a, I want to have, and I hope that I am having an impact on 
other research scientists and graduate students and undergraduate students, especially those that work for CERCI, um, who, you know, we pay to work on our program evaluation and research projects. And I hope that, like, the impact that I have on them is around what it looks like to be an inclusive leader, what a welcoming work environment can look like, um, you know, what it feels like to have safe space to grow in knowledge and skills. So knowing that, like, not everybody has everything they need to do a job, but making sure that people realize that, like, that's part of that's part of the work situation is to learn how to do things on the job and to have a safe space and support from your colleagues and and um, leaders to do that. So, you know, I I want to have an impact on people, I guess that's the one, mm -hmm. you know, one part of that. And then I think when I think about like my scholarship, probably the biggest article that I feel like most most people maybe know or might cite are is the work that I did with Kate Samuelson on engineering students and community cultural wealth, the um, which is Yoso's framework. We published that in JEE in 2016. And I hope and I think some people have told me that it has really helped them rethink some of their assumptions um, mm -hmm. to focus more mm -hmm. on assets of students rather than deficits. So it's a mm -hmm. more of an asset-based model. So but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's one of those things that yeah. I think a lot of folks, we don't, you don't really know what kind of impact you really are having sometimes. Sure. Yeah. But let me ask you one follow-up question. In addition to the two things you've highlighted, um, talk about the the value of an evaluator on a project and the kind of um, impact that evaluators can have when, when, like you said, a high quality evaluation. Like talk about your or your team's impact through that lens. Yeah, that's actually, um, I was just speaking to a class of undergrads recently about program evaluation. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the professor asked me like, so what, what do you like most about the work that you do? And I was like, actually, I, I love the program evaluation allows me to use my social science research skills but then to actually have an impact. And it's so meaningful when you can give recommendations on how programs maybe could improve so that they can meet their mm -hmm. goals more readily. Mm -hmm. um, and then mm -hmm. you actually see them make those changes and then their program mm -hmm. and then the results improve the next year. And so you mm -hmm. feel like, you know, it's not just like sometimes with scholarship, you feel like you're putting your research out into the world and you have no idea mm -hmm. what, the results are, but we can see actual changes with the work that we do in program evaluation and um, and helping people to keep an eye on equity in their work and thinking about how they're um, addressing equity or not is a key thing that we do at Cersei. Yeah, that's the impact when I think about you, but the other things are cool too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <over here. laughs> I, I'm going to... Um... I'm going to say that like I fully endorse this high quality evaluation that you speak of from Cersei from personal experience. I mean, chef's kiss, kiss mm -hmm. like as far as mm -hmm. evaluating, giving feedback, uh, being thoughtful. I've really had a really, really good experience in working with you all in ex uh, external evaluation. So I want to, I want to mm -hmm. highlight that. I also want to mm -hmm. uh, give kudos to you bringing up 
uh, this paper that you published in 2016 in, for CCW and talking about asset-based framing, I do think that we've seen a shift in engineering mm -hmm. education and the way people look at design, design and look at research in a way that does not focus a deficit framing, right? You see it a lot. In fact, the pendulum may have swung a little, just a little bit uh, in, in the stream of like being able to really identify deficit versus asset base. But I think that that's a good push. And I think I've, I think you could see evidence in it. Like I suspect if somebody looked at publications since 2016 that you would see, um, and especially in, I see it from graduate students, right? They're very keen on, I want to be sure that I have an asset-based framing. And I, I have to say that I believe that some of that has to come from that paper that came out that was that was consumed so readily by the uh, mm -hmm. community. Um, mm -hmm. Part of this podcast is we talk about scholars and then we also talk about scholarship. And so we've gotten to know you a little bit. I, I imagine if we could talk like forever about just more about your journey, if we were given the opportunity and time, but in particular, one of the main reasons why we invited you to be a guest on the podcast this particular time was to facilitate a, a dialogue or a conversation around methods that scholars can use to guide different kinds of inquiries. And today we wanted to talk to you specifically about PAR, which stands for Participatory Action Research. We'd like to sort of pull back the curtain and talk about some of its ideals and more importantly, the realities. So sometimes we have this very theoretical, this is the, what we think we want to do. And then we go to try and do it and it doesn't quite work out the way we thought it was. So we could talk a little bit about the realities um, of trying to use this method in inquiry. So can you tell us um, a little bit about uh, some engineering education projects where you've leveraged PAR for your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you don't mind, just in case folks aren't familiar with participatory action research, I'll say a little bit about my understanding of it. To, to, but that, you know, to be very clear, it's like probably a very small proportion of what everyone understands it to be. So um, when I think about participatory action research, I'm really thinking about, or this this method is often something that's considered to be incorporated in like all aspects of the research. So you're getting your community that is involved in the research, involved in even defining your research questions, um, also in collecting your data, some in analyzing your data and reporting out. And it usually has like a really, a bit more of a democratic feel to it. So you're, the mm -hmm. research methods are really collaborative um, and the community members or the participants in your research are really almost co-researchers. Um, I mean, this is like the ideal, right? Um, and mm -hmm. I'll tell you later about how we did, did not do all of that exactly as um, the ideal states. But, um, and I think sometimes people talk about action research as being something that is relevant or similar sort of to, um, I mean, that's the, the second part of it, you know, it can be action research and not be as participatory. So, you know, there's parts of that that I think um, are worth consideration in terms of both parts of the participatoriness and the action research part of it. Um, and then the one of the things when we first started the project that I'm going to tell you about, we kept on having to like re- think the words we use to describe the research we were doing. So in particular, we some of the folks on the team found themselves saying like, yeah, let's we're doing this research on the red community. And 
we had to keep saying, no, 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 no. This is not on the red community. We are doing it with the red community. Um, it's, it's not for the participants. It's like we are, this is meant to be a collaborative thing. And so trying to use the right words to help us remember that this is supposed to be, you know, a more participatory thing. So, but, you know, imagine having like 30 researchers on your project. <laughs> it's a bit messy. Um, and it's time consuming to get people involved. And, you know, the research, some of the literature out there talks about like, you know, there's no really one right way to do this kind of work. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the ideal part of, or, you know, what I, what I think of when I think of participatory action research. Have either of you done any participatory action research? I have a student who is who is exploring using like um, uh, photo voice, which is a participatory mm -hmm. action research method. And and yeah, so I think some of these challenges of like how to get everybody on board and get everybody using the same language, but even same understanding of what the end goal is and co-constructing that with your co-researchers is is challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm in the midst of a project now um it's an organizational change project through the equity center of virginia tech um focused on grad education where we um, are taking a par approach to how we may make change in grad education so like you said i i'm just at the beginning of that process but i i concur with the ideals that you mentioned yeah yeah so we we started which we're, are, we have been trying to use this method, sometimes less successfully, on an NSF-funded uh, project that is um, what we call REDPAR. So it's um, a project we're working with the NSF Revolutionizing Engineering Departments, or RED grantees. Um, and we've been collaborating um, on that project. It's We don't have a red grant. We actually have had eagers and RFEs to sort of mm -hmm. collaborate with Rose Holman and our research practice partnership. Um, so Julia Williams and Eva Andricich and Sriram Mohan are all the Rose Holman folks that have worked on that side. And then um, on the research side, you know, we've had multiple graduate students and uh, Kara Margario has helped with um, uh, lead some of the research for a while um, and myself, but we've been kind of doing this work since 2016 and the, the partnership with Rose Holman, and this is sort of the broad context for it, is that Rose Holman is really kind of providing a customized change, learning how to make change curriculum, if you will. Um, for the team members that are part of these red grantee teams and they can help convene the teams and they're helping the teams to learn from each other and from REDPAR. And on the research side, we've been studying the process of change across the red teams. And so we've looked at, um, we have some different research outputs around different areas of the change process. So like building a team, what team formation, looks like search and selection of your team members, um, development of shared vision um, and how that's different from buy-in and uh, building strategic partnerships and having, you know, how to create unified voice and some group agency to make change within your 
uh, group and also resource mobilization. So um, those are all the areas we focused on in the past. And we have some new focus areas for the next, the grant that we're just starting. But I think what you're probably more interested in is how we've been trying to do PAR or not so well. Um, and so I think that um, one of the ways that we are doing that um, or in the spirit of PAR is that we have been and continually think, try and think about how our research is going to be used or could be used by the RED mm -hmm. community members. So is this going to be useful to a new RED team that comes in or to another change project, organizational change project that's happening? Like, are these, is this information going to be able to be generalized to other change projects so that, and will it be useful basically? Um, mm -hmm. And I guess in some ways that like connects back to my, my love of my, the way that I love evaluation because it feels useful. So I, that make, mm -hmm. kind of makes sense. Um, I think we've also been trying to make sure that the, some of the data we collect, you know, is going back to the teams in thoughtful ways. So it's not extractive data collection. So one example of that is when we do baseline, the baseline focus groups with each team and each cohort, we share back with them kind of a memo or a brief on our takeaways from that uh, focus group so that they can see sort of what we pulled out of what they said and continue to reflect upon um, what they said. We actually hear from the team sometimes that even just being in the focus group is like, wow, we we didn't have the time to actually do this reflection before. So it's it's helped the data collection part of it has been helpful for the teams in other ways to help them kind of coalesce their ideas on something. So, and we also have kind of an edit process. If we send that memo back with the key insights and they're like, no, we didn't really mean that, then we can, th that's great, right? Cause then we can modify the data, we can reflect like their response to what we thought we saw, and then we can make edits as appropriate. So mm -hmm. I was going to say that sounds challenging, right? Like this, this back and forth volley, I, I understand it's part of the tenants, but how do you, I guess, reconcile that? Because I imagine in some cases you might see some things that they're not quite seeing because they haven't quite got to that reflective part yet, or how, how does that dance go? <laughs> it is a it can be a bit of a volley um I think I think we've mostly seen you know very positive uh responses to that because it's not something you often see in research of sort of like giving the data back in some ways and so mm -hmm. um I I do think that a few times we've had to have like further conversations Mm -hmm. to make sure that we fully understand what, you know, the difference in perspectives is. Mm -hmm. um, and that does, it complicates data, our data set, right? To have, that's like mm -hmm. a different piece of data to use. Um, mm -hmm. But like I said, it's mess, PAR is messy. <laughs> so maybe we're, we're like really living up to that ideal of PAR <laughs> being messy. <laughs> um, before we talk about like, challenges like what makes par worth doing you know what why would somebody even consider par yeah you know i, I think 
I think one of the reasons is this idea of democratizing research and mm-hmm. and being in community with the people mm-hmm. that you're doing research on slash with, you know, like to try and really shift that perspective of the researcher as this, um, you know, unbiased yeah. person outside yeah. of the group, right? That help yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the big idea, I think, for me, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And in some ways, I kind of hear you saying that it can be a method that allows you to live out certain values. Um, so if you perceive that there shouldn't be a disconnect between the researcher and those participating in the research process, or if you perceive that research should be useful um, immediately, you know, and valuable to a broader community, or if you, you know, just different things that you may hold as values, this may be a a method that kind of gives you a, even with this messiness, it may give you the leeway or at least the opportunity to live out some of those values through the process um, really quickly. Uh, Yes, I I completely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I appreciate you um, taking us kind of behind the scenes of um, some of your PAR work. And so now I just want to pivot a little bit for those that may be considering PAR and just talk about some of the barriers. So like, tell us a little bit about some of the, maybe the barriers or limitations, and we've kind of hinted at it too. Um, are there any unanticipated challenges that you face that, that others should be mindful of, or at least begin to think about things they want to they want to mitigate or have a plan for yeah I mean I I have so many (laughs) (laughs) um no I have I have ideas here um so one is you know the way that you come to doing par can make a difference for how you're able to do it Um, So, for example, I feel like we haven't really been able to have the community involved in defining the research questions that we've been asking, Mm -hmm. like, directly. I mean, they, we do and have pulled um, sort of, like, we're on all the monthly calls and all that stuff. So when they're talking about their challenges, we can hear that and kind of think about how we could address it with research. But like, when you write an NSF proposal, you don't usually have the 30 people that are going to be part of the research, you know, also mm-hmm. writing the research questions with you. And so the mm-hmm. fact that that's the way that, you know, research proposals are written can has, you know, kind of limited the ability to engage, um, to directly engage folks, I think, in that mm-hmm. process. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, frankly, while we've, um, we have collaborated with project team members like red grantees in fact jeremy you were one when you were Mm -hmm. at arizona state you were working on that red grant um Mm -hmm. and we co-authored an ase paper with you and with um purdue Mm -hmm. faculty ed berger and we presented Mm -hmm. also uh, with some other team member um red members at FIE one year. So we've done Mm -hmm. some of that collaboration, but frankly, I feel like we should be doing more. And Mm -hmm. and, like, we kind of know why that's not happening because it takes Mm -hmm. time to Mm -hmm. engage in this work. And in earlier grants, we didn't build in 
any funds to support people mm. to engage in that work. And so if you need more time, that means you really need money to mm. provide to folks. And so the most recent grant that we put in, we finally put in an honorarium for some folks to engage with us and in sort of different ways in the research uh, for community members to engage with us. So that's, I think I'm hoping that that's going to be a really awesome improvement to the ability to do this work um, that we we haven't really been able to do in the past. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, I guess I want to bring up one other topic that I think you have some thoughts about. Can you talk about the role of theory in uh, PAR? Yeah, I mean, if I think again, depending on the ideal, like if this is an ideal situation, the community members are really guiding all of this and they may not be as familiar with theory. So I think PAR projects are often a little bit more disconnected from theory, depending on, you know, how much the researcher kind of pushes a particular theoretical framework. And so I think our our project has maybe used theory more than um, some other PAR projects do in part because, you know, I think we, we've got the action research part down pretty well, but I feel like the participatory part is the part we're still trying to get better at. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Can I jump in just for a um, second? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it sounds like in thinking about PAR and thinking about engineering education research and thinking about uh, Jeremy, you know, we had Dr. Streveler some episodes ago and we talked about uh, the the convening and subsequent paper that came out about sort of like the tenets of rigorous research, which I know we can cringe a little mm -hmm. bit at the word, but yet, in, you know, here we are. It sounds like there would be a, a lot of tensions to reconcile when thinking about mm -hmm. sort of like the, the norms in engineering education mm -hmm. research and participatory action research, right? Like the the notion that I mean, for one, to your point, even the way the systems are set up, whether or not that's grant proposal mm -hmm. writing and not being able to have your participants involved in the design from the beginning based on the way proposals work, or even I've had gra graduate students say, well, I thought about doing it for my dissertation, but they were sort of discouraged from doing it. And I wonder how much of that is based on sort of those norms and values. And even then, you know, even if they're putting together a proposal for a thesis, again, they're probably not going to have their community engagement involved in the research design and research questions and such. And so it sounds like um, one of the barriers might even just be some of these fundamental tensions between the discipline and the, mm -hmm. the methodology. I mean, I love it. I love everything you've said about democratizing mm -hmm. research, but it, it I could see the tensions that might exist there. Any words of encouragement, I guess I'm thinking, to those who are who really have sort of that, you know, research paradigm that really believes in the co-construction and how much this aligns with those beliefs that Jeremy was speaking to, like what words of encouragement might you give to those folks who this is the thing that calls them for the research, but are grappling with this tension between the discipline and the methodology? That was a loaded question. I hope you can tease out what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I mean, I'll do what I can here. Um, I think I 
I do think that we do what we can, right? In, in, in our lives in general, right? So when you're thinking about if this is your value, how do you, how do you do the best that you can to sort of live that value in your research? Um, and we're not always going to live up to our values a hundred percent. Sometimes we're going to have to make you know, concessions based on the reality of our lives and the reality, frankly, of academia um, and mm -hmm. the traditionalness and expectations in academia and time. Like, imagine your your master's thesis, someone who's trying to write a master's thesis with this work and get done in like a year and a half or something. And that's, you know, that's like a super uh, you know, as a as an advisor to that person, you're thinking like, how do you decrease the scope of this research enough so that this person can use this method in a way that fits with and aligns with their values, but also allows them to actually finish um, or or set up expectations that this is going to be a two year process to do this kind of work. Um, and it's more about just saying like, that's one of the trade offs of of trying to do this kind of work, I think. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a little bit earlier that your center does program evaluation and research uh, work. Can you tell us just a little bit more about that combination of activities? Yeah, I mean, I think we come to all, even our evaluation work with a social science lens, um, you know, the, or, you know, education research lens, um, you know, our core staff right now at Circe are actually, we're kind of sociologist heavy. So that's not a good thing necessarily. I, I would like to see it be more diverse, but we do have an education, um, a PhD in education um, who is working with us now and, um, and our graduate students are actually across like all kinds of different fields, um, but generally have, uh, you know, some sort of social science area. But I, I feel like this is the, like, um, using our social science skills for good and not evil <laughs> part of the work that we do um, to, you know, try and collect credible data to use, you know, the, the research skills to be able to collect good evaluation data. Um, to ask thoughtful questions that aren't leading, um, you know, when we're doing focus groups or, or interviews. Um, and really, you know, the work that we've done, I think because of, because we've been working on a lot of evaluation projects, we have a network of faculty and programs, both at UW, but really across the country, um, more, even more broadly, probably more people across the country than at the University of Washington that, you know, we've worked with including professional societies and other nonprofits in addition to lots of universities um, that we've worked with. So I just, I love the fact that we can, we can make change happen um, and within the context of evaluation and the context of using those research skills. Um, so this practice and impact kind of, um, the work with PAR kind of relates, like I mentioned earlier, to, you know, I think why evaluation feels so good to us as well. Well, we're at the time in the podcast, which is my favorite time, which is the prediction time. Um, where do you see engineering education going 
if you had a crystal ball and could predict the future of engineering education, what would you see or say? I really want to be positive, but I'm struggling on this question. So I just, I, I have a lot of worry right now about education in general, higher education, but even K-12 education. There's so much national and local pushback um, in some states more than others, certainly, but uh, that's all sort of trying to push down um, the work to advance equity, inclusion, diversity, justice. And mm -hmm. I just heard from a colleague yesterday who is in Wisconsin, who mm -hmm. um, they're, you know, they're cutting like 43 positions that have anything to do with diversity from their, from the University of Wisconsin system in higher education and kind of mm -hmm. reallocating that money to other. And it's just, I think now like, I don't know if this is prediction time, but I think we're all going to have to. We all need to stand up and use our voices to, and the power that we do have, even when we feel like we don't have power. I think we all have power within our, our spheres of influence and making sure that our communities are um, creating welcoming, inclusive, and equitable places, and that the, that's a priority in the work that we do. I think there's a lot of people in engineering education already doing this work. But when I think about mm -hmm. ASEE, for example, like the the Venn diagram of people doing this kind of work and the people that are doing other kinds of engineering education work is a very small, that's a very small part of the broader community from my perspective. And so I really want to, I'd like to see more people using their voices, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. So, and, and actually to what uh, Monique said earlier, I do think that there has been the positive shift away from deficit approaches. Um, and I've noticed that a lot in the last five-ish years. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really hope, you know, more than just thinking about assets that we really start to focus on institutions mm -hmm. um, and the stronger focus on practice, organizational practices and policies um, and not just individual level work because, those practices and policies and the cultures can really support or not a you know diverse and inclusive educational system. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Did I say diverse? I don't think so. <laughs> diverse. Apologies. <laughs> Thank you. I feel all of that. I feel you. I feel you all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Apart from the impact question, you're at my favorite part of the podcast, which is the name drop. Um, so are there any scholars either in or outside of engineering education that you're following and they could be established, well-established or new, but who's on your radar? Let's do a name drop. Yeah. So when I thought about thinking about this question, I would say, like, who would I prioritize at a conference like if I was going to a conference and I saw that these people were presenting I'd be like yep I want to go see whatever they have to say because I don't care what it is because I know it's going to be good and interesting so that's how I'm thinking about this question um and I have like a list of people that I am very interested in continuing to see what comes out of their work so 
Kelly Cross is someone that I've worked with in the past and continue to work with that I just really appreciate the work that she's doing. Um, Alex Mejia, Idalis Villanueva Alarcón. Um, I appreciate uh, the work that she's doing around the, um, oh my gosh, I'm just blanked on the, on, what did you say? Hidden curriculum. Yes, hidden curriculum. I, I don't know why that, that concept never comes to my brain quickly. Anyway, um, Stephen Secules, um, Alice Pauly, uh, David Delane's work um, is always super thoughtful and um, deep. And of course, I mean, how could I not mention you two, both <laughs> of you? Um, I think, you know, both, whenever I see work come out, the work from Monique about women of color and computing is like so necessary and always has such a great perspective in it. And Jeremy, your work on impact has been impactful to me and to many others, I think also in the field. So um, can I name someone that isn't a, like the same sort of engineering education field as well? Absolutely, yeah, please. So I just finished a book um, that I listened to I don't know if I'm allowed to call say that I read it since I technically yes. do it, but um, on this podcast, you are welcome <laughs> to listen to audiobooks. Oh, good, good, good. Okay. Um it was it was just such a shift. It helped me shift a little bit in my thinking, and I need to do so much more work to to think about this. But the book is called Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hersey. And she um, is, I guess, I don't know what her official title is, like CEO of the Napa Ministry, but this book connects capitalism and white supremacy and the, the human right that we all have to rest um, and how those, those things are connected and are fighting each other sort of every day. Um, and it would just, it was, I loved it. Uh, it was great. Mm. I would recommend it. It's a very quick book um, to listen to or read, I think. Um, but frankly, mm. I want to like put it on my rotation so that I re-listen mm. to it, right? And like continue mm. to think about it. Um, and so, yeah, put it on your list, put it on your Libby apps um, or whatever mm. you use for your library. Um, yeah. And um yeah, I just, I think it was, it was a recent thing. That's the second time okay. I've heard about that book in the last couple mm -hmm. weeks. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely adding it to my list. Am I? Oh, um, do you have any parting words for, you know, I mean, we have an international research brief community. So just before we sign off for this particular episode, do you have any parting words you want to share? Um, this might be kind of trite, I don't know, but, um, I've kind of lived this mantra a little bit in my own life, which is as we know better, we do better. Um, mm -hmm. let's not beat ourselves up for doing things wrong that we didn't know how to do better. And also as we learn about new things, you know, for example, with PAR, like we've learned a little bit with each new grant. And so we keep trying things to do them better and to see how they work. And I think, I think we have to keep doing that. Um, 
you know, we have to keep learning. We have to keep using that learning to make new and better decisions. And, you know, I guess as an evaluator, like I love the a focus on, you know, evidence-based decision-making to improve lives. Um, but when I think of, but also like, don't engineers do that? Like evidence-based decision-making to improve lives. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> You know, I think just keep learn, keeping learning, keep doing, keep trying. Um, and that's, we're human beings. We're going to make mistakes and we're going to like not live up to our values sometimes, but we just have to keep, mm -hmm. keep our eye on that long-term vision of what we're trying to mm -hmm. achieve and keep going. Yeah. Love it. Well, I just want to just publicly, really publicly, like to our international community kind of public, just say thanks um for your for your work with par um like as someone who has one worked with you um <clears throat> like i really do perceive that you partner with people when you're working with them and, and it, it also aligns with your evaluator um tenants too like the notion of being a critical friend where you're close enough but not too far um but I just want to say thank you for your for your work in participatory action research in the engineering ed community. I know at the beginning you were like, I'm not sure if I have a card, and I'm here to tell you you do. Um, and I just want to say thanks because it is a messy method, you know, to lean into. And I think that um, I value and I give kudos to your decision to not just try it once, but you've talked about you know three and four grants. Like you keep going back to the well, you know. Um, to say it's still worth doing. And that's why I asked you that question. You know, why is it worth doing, even though it's hard and messy? Well, and if we lean in long enough, we'll see that a lot of methods <laughs> are hard and messy. Um, but this one aligns with things that I value as well. So I just want to say thanks. And for being an example we can come to, you know, and for being vulnerable about what's hard and stuff that you're like, we're still figuring it out. Um, so thanks for letting us shine a light a little bit on the work that you've been doing and are doing. Um, just want to say I appreciate you. I'm I'm gonna piggyback and say also thank you. Th thank you, well, thank you for the name drop. So I'm not gonna let that one go by either. But also thank you for being bold in your methodological choices. And I think by proxy emboldening others to lean into their values mm -hmm. when they choose their methods, right? I think sometimes we feel like we have to make those tough choices and and there are um, options and opportunities and you are a good model for that for others to to take those things and not see them as two separate entities, but bring their, their researcher and their personal values into those spaces as well. I'm also gonna say thank you for encouraging the community also to use our voice during these particularly mm -hmm. contentious political times mm -hmm. right? We're across across the United States and across the globe, right? There are a lot of things that um, a lot of disruption and a lot of a lot of opportunity for us to backslide um, in our advancements in equity and justice and inclusion and diversity. And so thank you for reminding us that we sort of have a, a responsibility at a minimum to continue to to stand up and, and be vocal. So thank you. Yeah, well said. Yeah. So thanks again for listening to today's podcast. And until next time, just remember to keep it simple. But significant.